Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 17. Judges, chapter 17. Hear now the word of our God. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took two hundred pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how far they were from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. 
So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jaram in Judah. On, account of, on this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jaram. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and, and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. I'm, I'm convinced that the author of the book of Judges, while he makes no moral comment about what's going on, I, I, I think I got you the tone in which he's writing. And there's actually a lot of clues in the text that suggest that this tone is very much intentional. And especially those sort of, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. This is very much at the heart of what he's cautioning against. You could just say, you know, sin has consequences. You could tell the story simply. There was once a man who stole a large amount of silver from his mother and the end result that it was a whole that a whole tribe sets part of it up as an idol. If you don't repent of your sin, it will only get worse and then snowball into a problem of epic proportions. Now, on the surface, 
that would appear to be the point of Judges 17 and 18. But there's a lot more going on here. What's this story doing here? I'll, I'll note that Judges 17 and 18 is the part of the book of Judges that gets the least playtime. I mean, it's you know, sort of commentaries sort of tend to run over it pretty quickly, and and you know on sermon audio, pastors just sort of like you know, and on you know even when you know, when when you look for comments like the the ancient Christian commentary series, they have the section for Judges 17 and 18 with no comments because they couldn't find anything from the early church fathers about this passage. This passage has stumped a lot of people as to what's it doing here. We've concluded the narrative of the various deliverers, and we've come to two stories here at the end of the book which, in which no judge is mentioned, but which exemplify how far Israel has fallen from their faithfulness in the days of Joshua. In one sense, our story tonight is pretty gloomy. It's a story that only gets worse and worse Sin and apostasy is met with sin and apostasy. There is no one who does good, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. They have all gone astray, each one to his own way. You see this in Micah and his mother. Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? The answer in the story is, no one, especially in this story. Micah comes to his mother and says, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from... Wait, 1,100 pieces of silver. We just heard about 1,100 pieces of silver in the last story. This was the amount that Delilah was offered from each of the five lords of the Philistines, totaling 5,500, but each one gave her 1,100. Now, 1,100 pieces of silver is a lot of silver. How many women in the region of the Danites would have 1,100 pieces of silver? Some have thought that Delilah is Micah's mother. The text doesn't say that. But the text wants you to think about Micah's mother in the context of Delilah. These are... Two women who do not walk in the way of the Lord. They do not fear the Lord and they are not to be praised. But notice why he comes to her. He fears the curse of his mother. She's cursed the, the one, whoever stole the silver. She's cursed this person. And he's like, that was me. And so he returns the silver in order to escape the curse. And then his mother blesses him to try to undo the curse. Words are powerful. To pronounce a curse is to call down the judgment of God. Micah's mother had cursed the thief, so when she realizes that her son was the thief, she hopes to neutralize the curse with a blessing. And really, what our, what our text does very clearly is show us how Micah's mother thinks of you know, how do you undo a curse. She's thinking very much like a Canaanite would. She's thinking very much like any self-respecting ancient Near Eastern person would. Ah, I will devote a portion of the silver to religious purposes and do all, which 
sort of if you're a if you're a good ancient Near Eastern person, this is this is how you this is how you undo a curse. Devote a portion of it to the gods, and the only problem is she's not thinking like a Yahweh worshiper at all. She names the name of Yahweh, but she takes his name in vain. And I hope that you caught that even in how I read the text, because this, all, of the, all of the taking of the Lord's name in this passage is entirely in vain. So she consecrates the silver to Yahweh. But she doesn't take it to the tabernacle at Shiloh. She uses 200 shekels to make an image and an idol. A piece of wood would be carved and then overlaid with silver. And so Micah takes the image, puts it in his household shrine, and then consecrates one of his own sons as a priest. And you're just shaking your head going, this is exactly contrary to what anything God has said. Deuteronomy 12 made it clear how we're supposed to worship God. None of this is okay. Like Gideon, he has established his own place of worship. And so right there we hear, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which also calls us back to remember Samson as well, because Samson was the one who had insisted on, she is right in my eyes. Samson was the one who had done what was right in his own eyes, and now we see how all Israel has become like Samson. If Samson was the best you could find, <laughs> truly, we're in trouble. So even though this is, in one sense, a book of history, it's also a sermon. We need to remember that the book of Judges is, was part of the, the former prophets, is what they're called. These are the, the writers of, the, of these history books are preachers who are telling these stories in order to tell you something about who God is and who we are and how we are to not be like our fathers, as Psalm 78 reminded us. Because too often we are like the Israelites. We run along our own path, doing what is right in our own eyes. And we need a king. We need a king who will do what is right in God's eyes. But more than that, a king who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. And that's why the second part of our story in verses 7 to 13, this, this Levite from Bethlehem in Judah is such an important person in our story. Notice how three times in verses 7 through 9 that the text emphasizes he is from Bethlehem in Judah. Why should this matter? Well, both of the, the last two stories in, our, in Judges, so here in 17 and 18, and the next time in 19 to 21, both of these last two stories have to do with Levites and with Bethlehem in Judah. Now, you might, you might have wondered, okay, how can a man be of the family of Judah and a Levite? Uh, part, of, part of it could just be, there's some confusion going on here, but there's a lot, there's a lot of that in Judges. But... The other part is simply that he's, if you recall, the, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law settled in Judah. Uh, his mother may have been a Judahite. His father, obviously, was a Levite, if you paid attention to the end of the text. Um, but however it may be, he's identified as a, 
a Judahite and a, he is of the family of Judah. He's also a Levite. Now, in some respects, this sounds rather promising in the book of Judges because we've seen already that God is with Judah. When Judah leads, good things happen. Now, we did get the, the caution in Samson's day that the people of Judah didn't follow Samson. They handed him over to the Philistines. But you might be thinking, is, if, is there a whisper of hope here? I mean, there's, this is the only character in the Old Testament who combines you know, Judahite and Levite descent. Is, there, is he, he going to be a type of Christ, a picture of Jesus? <laughs> Not quite. This Levite from Bethlehem in Judah comes to the hill country of Ephraim and meets Micah. And when Micah discovers that he is looking for a place, he offers him the local priesthood. And if you should be saying to yourself, this is nuts. What do you mean, local priesthood? The priests, the priests are supposed to be in, at Shiloh, where the, the tabernacle is. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. So Micah boots his son from being priest and ordains the Levite from Bethlehem in Judah as his priest, declaring... Now I know Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Never mind that I stole from my mother. Never mind that I've made a graven image. Never mind that I've established a shrine besides the one that Yahweh appointed in Shiloh. Now I know Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Got to be careful about this sort of magical thinking. If you think that God will bless you because, oh, I've got this, I I did that. That's precisely backwards. If you say, oh, God will bless me because I read my Bible every morning, but you treat your coworkers like dirt. God will bless me because I have family worship every night. And then you ignore God for the rest of the day. Not going to work. It's not enough to go through the motions and do certain things right when everything else is going wrong, God will not be mocked. Man judges the outward appearance, but the Lord judges the heart. It's not enough to have things outwardly lining up. Although, in this case, he's got very little outwardly lining up, but nonetheless, his heart is heading in entirely the wrong direction. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the people of Dan were seeking an inheritance. They were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For, and notice it says, For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now, we heard in the book of Joshua that the tribe of Dan was allotted a portion for their inheritance. So you might wonder, what does it mean they haven't had a portion allotted? Well, the reason is because the portion that was allotted to them was in the, it was sort of west of Judah, west of Benjamin, uh, which, by the way, is Philistine territory now. (laughs) So perhaps the people of Dan might have sort of lived there for a little while, but then they get pushed back up into the hill country, which is why you find Samson, as we saw over the last few weeks, sort of squeezed in by Philistines, pushed up against Judah, because, quite frankly, that's where the Danites were living. And so now abandoning the inheritance that God had given them, the Danites decide to take matters into their own hands and find a new home. To put it simply, they were not seeking a heavenly country. 
They were seeking an earthly one. We do this every time we think we know better than God. God says to seek the interests of others ahead of our own. But we think that's too hard. We're selfish, and so we do our own thing. We want all the blessings of God, but we want them our way rather than his way. And when we insist on having our way, we end up very much where the Danites do. So they send five able men, literally these five sons of strength, which echoes the description of Gideon, the mighty man, in order to spy out the land. And we hear echoes here. this, This is what Moses had done in sending out Caleb and Joshua, the 12 spies. This is what Joshua had done when he had sent out the two spies to spy out the land. So you can, you can see, ah, we've got good precedent for this, so we're going we're, we're gonna to be like Moses. We're going to be like Joshua. But their spiritual discernment is far from that of Caleb or Moses or Joshua. And they come to the hill country of Ephraim. They, they pass by Micah's house. And they hear the voice of the Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and they recognize his voice. Now, how did they recognize it? I mean, now, it's possible that they knew him personally. The Danites were, after all, living in the territory of Judah. Or else they recognize his accent. There's been enough time now for different accents, as we've seen the, the when when... Uh, Jephthah sort of holds the fords against the Ephraimites saying, oh, you you can't say Shibboleth. Different accents have developed throughout the region. And so he, they ask him, oh, we we, we know your accent. What are you doing here? And he replies in in effect, I'm a hired priest. So with a so-called priest of God before them, they seek his guidance. Inquire of God, please. Will we succeed? And this quasi-priest of an idolatrous and apostate household declares a blessing. Shalom, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Notice how everyone here claims to be serving the Lord. Everyone says, Lord, Lord. But they do not do what he says. If you claim Jesus as Lord, then you need to do what he says. Just everybody in our text is is saying, Yahweh. But they're not doing what Yahweh says. So the five spies depart and they keep continue going north and they, they only hear what they want to hear. They take this as Yahweh's blessing on their journey, and they go and spy out the valley of Laish, and they return home, giving the report of Caleb and Joshua. God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And so the 600 men from Dan set out to attack Laish. Notice how Laish is depicted in our, in our text quiet and unsuspecting, with no deliverer, because the Sidonians were far away and apparently not very interested in this remote outpost. Now, pretty clearly, the people of Laish are the most sympathetic characters in the whole text. Why is our author sympathetic to these Canaanites? According to the command of God, They were to be destroyed. 
But Israel is worse. The Danites are living in rebellion against God, refusing to be content with their own inheritance. They've turned to idolatry, and they're worse than the Canaanites. So the Canaanite city of Laish becomes the good guy in our story. But before coming to Laish, the 600 men stop at Micah's house, and the, the five scouts say, Do you not know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. Now, when you hear that, if you're thinking like a faithful Israelite, you're like, oh, no, we must get rid of these. We must destroy this house. We must blot out this this horrible idolatry from Israel. And that's why the text sets you up that way. It's like, oh, are they actually going to be... <laughs> no. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so they start plundering the house. And the priest says, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? And they say, well, keep quiet, shh. Put your hand on your mouth. Come with us. Be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest of the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? Would you rather be the the pastor of a small family or a mega church? A priest is like, oh, this is some pretty good career advancement. I was looking for a place. I I found it. it But, oh boy, I can move up in the world now. So now notice that so they were taking the ephod household gods and carved image. Now it says the priest takes them. He's like, oh, I, uh, let me help you here. <laughs> the priest steals from Micah and abandons his master. Micah had stolen the silver from his mother and then turned the silver into an idol. And now it all happens again, you might say. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes and seeks first his own kingdom. Now, you might wonder, where was Micah in all this? Uh, He's out gathering friends and neighbors because he he sees there's too many of them for him. So he goes, gets all of his friends and neighbors and pursues the the Danites. And and when they they see him, he says, he says, you know, you take my gods that I made. I mean, the, the absurdity of this coming out of the mouth of an Israelite. You take the, my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? You would think that Micah might even maybe realize as he's saying the words, what have I done? But this is what idolatry does. Idolatry turns us into fools. Anytime you find yourself turning to idols, which simply means anytime that you make something else more important than the living God, you're believing a lie. And pretty much anytime we sin, there is some sort of idolatry that's at the root of that. Because if we loved the Lord our God with all our heart, we'd never sin. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, then you will always do what he says. Our problem is that we don't love God with all our heart. There's invariably something else that 
matters more to us than the living God whenever we sin. So that's where when you start to see a pattern in your life where you're like, hmm, I'm falling into this sin a lot. It can be useful to ask, what lie am I believing? What, what is the place where I'm, I'm believing something that's just not true? And conversely, because in one sense every sin is based on a lie, the next question to ask yourself is, what truth do I need to hear? What does King Jesus say about me and my situation and the things around me? But nobody in our text is anywhere close to this. They continue on in their unbelief, in their lies. The Danites threaten him with death and move on. The 600 troops from Zorah and Eshtel, Samson's home turf, if you recall, are able to take the city of Laish. You think about how the entire tribe had been unable to take the smaller towns in their proper territory, but now they're able to succeed up in Laish. That, this would almost sound like God's blessing on Dan. After all, throughout the book of Judges, whenever the people sin, disaster comes upon them. Something different is happening in this story. Part of it is, these last two stories are going to be different from what we've been hearing in the stories of the Judges. These last two stories in the book of Judges are focused around characters from Bethlehem in Judah. Even in the midst of apostasy and idolatry, God's blessing is on Bethlehem in Judah. There's something about Bethlehem in Judah that should cause you to take notice. In those days, there was no king in Israel. We need a king. We need a king from Bethlehem in Judah because even when everything else is going wrong, God's blessing remains upon the man from Bethlehem. Now, did you notice who this Levite from Bethlehem in Judah is? He's Jonathan, verse 30, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. This is Moses' grandson. Now, some of the rabbis couldn't accept the idea that the grandson of Moses could fall this far, so they, they add a nun into it, and, and they call him Manasseh instead of Moses. But the text is clear. This is Moses. Even the grandson of Moses has become corrupt. There is none righteous, not even one. It's worth noting that, that God's blessing often still attends the ministry of apostate preachers. It's not a man's personal character that determines whether God will use him. God had called Jonathan to be his servant, and even though Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, was an idolatrous priest, he was still God's servant. And God's blessing came through his mouth in spite of all his own idolatry and sin. Those who minister in the name of the king from Bethlehem in Judah are used by God regardless of their personal character. It was, it was a, de a debate in the early church at one point. Of, okay, if the, if the pastor falls into serious sin, does that mean that all of his baptisms are, are invalid? And they said, no, because it's not his personal character that makes his ministry valid. It's God's own work 
that makes it valid. And so that's where grievous evil comes to Dan and all Israel because of the sin of Micah and Jonathan. The carved image was set up at Dan. Jonathan's heirs were priests in Dan until the captivity of the land. Now, what's what's meant by the captivity of the land? Uh, some have thought that it's referring to the Assyrian captivity in the in the eighth century, but uh, but verse thirty and thirty one need to be seen together here, because it says his sons were priests the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Mark, Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. How long was the ark of God at Shiloh? In 1 Samuel 4 and 5, we're told that the, the ark was taken from Shiloh by the Philistines when the ark of the covenant was captured and taken to the, the, the temple of Dagon. The, the part, of, part of it is, we tend to think in terms of the captivity of the land, in terms of the exile, but probably the exile hadn't happened yet when the book of Judges was written. It's very likely the book of Judges is written probably around the time of David and Solomon because, this, as, we'll, as we'll see next time, the, the contrast between Bethlehem in Judah versus Gibeah in Benjamin, Saul's hometown versus David's hometown, suggests a polemic that's showing why you want a king from Bethlehem, not a king from Gibeah. For most of Israel's history, after the, after the, the divided kingdom, who cares? Benjamin and Judah were the only two tribes that followed the house of David. Why would you try to polarize Benjamin and Judah when Benjamin's following David? <laughs> Makes would make no sense. But in this time of David and Solomon, when there still is a polarity between those who sort of were still loyal to Saul in his memory, you could see how, you know, we want a king from Bethlehem, not a king from Gibeah, not a king from Benjamin. And so this, this reference to the house of Shiloh, would, the house of God at Shiloh, is, is because the, the most, until the time of the exile, the, the, the captivity of the ark at Shiloh was the most devastating experience in Israel's history. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, verses 12 to 15. Because Jeremiah writes this, when, you know, before the exile has happened. So Jeremiah writes this, and as he's reflecting on what happened at Shiloh, he says, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke To you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Jeremiah compares the exile of Jerusalem to the exile of the ark from Shiloh. What I did to Shiloh, I will do to you. Idolatry and apostasy will result in judgment. An apostate church will not stand. Oh, God may temporarily bless and provide apparent successes, but in the end, God will destroy the wicked church and bring it to destruction. This is why we need Jesus. 
Jesus Christ alone is Lord and head of the church. Rome has tried to guarantee fidelity through an unbroken succession of bishops. But no earthly line, no merely human order, can withstand the cycle of the book of Judges. There's a way in which you can see the warning of Judges comes against everyone who puts their hope and trust in earthly descent, you might say. Judges tells us to look for that king in Bethlehem of Judah. For there God's blessing will come upon a weak and sinful race when God raises up a king after his own heart. So we need to observe what King Jesus has commanded. Jesus says, Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When our Lord Jesus has told us what to do, we need to do it. The book of Judges shows us what happens when we ignore what God commands. The cycle goes downhill fast. And we are also called to beware. Beware of doing what is right in your own eyes. It's why Paul will say in Ephesians 5, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because, especially in the church in America, where American individualism, nobody tells me what to do, we are so prone to say, ah, I'm right, I know I'm right, and so therefore, I won't submit to you because I know I'm right. You're looking at someone who has often been overconfident in his own opinions. I've had to learn the importance of submission, not just submission in general, but submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Think about what it means to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. It means I submit not because I think they are right. If I only submit when I think that they're right, I'm actually just doing what is right in my own eyes. I'm not actually submitting. It's also not because they've persuaded me. It's not because, ah, okay, they convinced me. No, I don't submit just because they've convinced me. Nor is it because I want them to like me. Oh, if I just go along with... No, I submit to one another... Because I revere Christ. Because I'm His. Because I, I fear Him, I revere Him, He's the one who... And so therefore, I submit to others out of reverence for Christ. I submit to one another. He's talking about those in the body of Christ. Now, I've often found out when I submit to others out of reverence for Christ, later I often realize they were right. That does happen. I've I've noticed that a a number of times when I found myself like, I need to submit to my brothers. I think they're wrong, but I I need to submit. I later find out, well, actually, they were right. But not always. Other times I found out, they were wrong. I was right. So... What does it matter? I mean, 
it wasn't sinful to do what they proposed. They may have been wrong. I may have been right. What does it matter? The reason why we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is not because they're right. If you submit to others because they're right, you're not doing it out of reverence for Christ. You're doing it because you think they're right. You think they're right. Do we see the pattern here? The pattern winds up being, I'm the judge, I'm the standard by which all things are decided. That doesn't work. Well, I mean, if you want to be like Micah or, or Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, go for it. That's where the path leads. The book of Judges is clear. The path leads to utter destruction. When we revere Christ, when we fear and honor Him, we will value an interest, we will value the interests of others more highly than we value our own. And so it won't be about, am I right? It will be about, how can I reverence Christ? How can I fear Him and follow Him? And thus, that, that really changes the whole dynamic in how you approach life. It, it, it's, it's not a very American way of talking, but it's a very biblical way of talking. It's what Jesus calls us to. So let's pray. Lord, help us, because we are very much like our culture, and we tend to do what is right in our own eyes. And we don't listen to the king from Bethlehem in Judah, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to submit to one another out of reverence to him. Lord, have mercy on us. And help us by your Holy Spirit to submit to one another out of reverence for your beloved son, that we might that we might live as the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, as those who 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 value the the calling of our King and the the, the kingdom of your Son above anything else. Lord have mercy and and give us eyes to see Jesus. Give us ears to hear what He is saying that we might hear Him and see Him and love Him, that we might walk together as your people. Lord, have mercy on us in our several callings as in each place where you put us, in each, whether it's in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, in, in each place where you put us, help us to keep our hearts and minds fixed upon Jesus who sits at your right hand. Help us to love you and to turn away from idols, to turn away from lies, and to believe the truth, to believe Jesus. Lord, help us. And be with those who are suffering and afflicted. Be with those who are, who, are, who are near to death and grant to them, Lord, eyes to see Jesus. Lord, have mercy upon those who are enduring bodily affliction and, and troubles of, of heart and of soul and strengthen them by your grace. Be with those who endure temptation and trial and be their refuge, their fortress, and their, their confidence. Be with those, O oh Lord, who, who face challenges and persecution for the sake of, of your name and help them by your Spirit and grant to them confidence to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus no matter what may befall. Help us, Lord, 
in everything we face to walk in the ways of, of our Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.